This podcast is The Live Mike. I'm your host, Mike Romai, on The Social Voice Project. Due to the tragic events that occurred in the United States on September 11, 2001, the war on terror continues by the way we govern, by the way we think about our safety, by the way we think about travel, and by the way we permit immigrants to come into this country. And I saw people jumping off the building. Everybody was running. The cops were trying to maintain the calm. And in that hate, people were stampeding. People started screaming that there was another plane coming. I didn't see the plane, but I turned around. Oh, my God. That looks like a second plane. And I actually saw people waving where the first plane crashed through. And then it was unbelievable seeing this second jet come crashing into the second tower. What is going on? And then we saw smoke coming out. Everybody started running out. And we saw the plane on the other side of the building. And there was smoke everywhere. People were jumping out the windows. Over there, they're jumping out the windows, I guess, because... and the screams of the dying, an indescribable scene of death and destruction. People seen leaping or being forced out of the building at fairly high levels. And when those buildings collapsed, that concrete and steel that came crashing down covered a wide area, a horrific sequence of destruction. This country, the most powerful in the world, has been, in effect, immobilized today 
by these terrorist attacks, and we can only hope that they are now all over with. Welcome to the Live Mike Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Romai. Most will recall where they were when they heard of the terrorist attacks on our homelands. Attacks at the World Trade Center in New York City, the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and a remote field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. A total of 2,977 people were killed in New York City, Washington, D.C., and Shanksville, Pennsylvania. The attack was led by Al-Qaeda leader, Osama bin Laden. 19 men hijacked four fuel-loaded U.S. commercial airplanes bound for West Coast destinations. American Airlines Flight 11 and United Airlines Flight 175 were intentionally crashed into the north and south towers of the World Trade Centers. In Washington, D.C. at the Pentagon, American Airlines Flight 77 crashed into the building. And near Shanksville, Pennsylvania, American Airlines Flight 93 crashed into a field. It has been reported that the hijackers crashed the plane in Shanksville after the passengers and crew attempted to retake control of the flight deck. New York Times reporters Jim Dwyer and Kevin Flynn published a book titled 102 Minutes, The Untold Story of the Fight to Survive Inside the Twin Towers. 102 Minutes covers the time when the first planes hit the buildings until they collapsed. I had an opportunity to speak with Jim Dwyer about the eyewitness testimony inside the Twin Towers. We've spent uh, most of the last three and a half years, or not quite three and a half, but going on three and a half years, trying to figure out what happened inside those two buildings on September 11th because, you know, while everybody in the world watched practically, uh, you know, as that catastrophe unfolded and we all saw the tapes, the, the main events and the, what was going on inside the building were out of sight. And we wanted to figure out two things, how so many people died and how so many more lived. And what we found out was that Pretty much everybody below the impact zone survived. Not every single person, but 99% or more survived below the impact zones in both towers. And how they all got out in the time that was available to them it was, you know, one of our first objectives in, in writing this book. And then figuring out what happened with the people who were upstairs in the impact zones and above them. Because what happened was the areas that were cut off that, that effectively became the death zones were far larger, about uh, 37 floors altogether. The planes themselves only hit four or five, six floors where they, you know, they did significant damage. So um, we, we set out to figure out what was going on with those folks who were mm -hmm. trapped upstairs and how come they couldn't get out. Even people 15 floors away were not able to escape. Yeah. Uh, so aside from the folks uh, on the floors that uh, suffered the, the greatest impact, yeah. uh, the people above those floors and perhaps even some of the people on those floors, they made the bad decision, the wrong decision, to try and go up to the roof instead of trying to get down? Yeah, people made all kinds of decisions. I mean, the, the, uh, they were in the North Tower. Well, first, you had asked me before. Let me see if I can sure. go back to the, your question, earlier question. Just that You asked how did we put all these conversations together? How do we know what we know in there? And what we did was we, we took um, tape transcripts. We took... Um, because there was about 2,000 pages of walkie-talkie transcripts just of workers in the building. The, the owners of the two towers, the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, had a very, very uh, sophisticated taping system and radio communication system. So there were many conversations that were recorded. 
Secondly, we spoke to over 200 surviving members of families to speak, you know, to find out if they had heard from their loved ones, and they very generously shared with us their communications, their recollections of the phone calls. In some cases, it was voicemails. A lot of cases, interestingly, a lot of people were able to get BlackBerry messages out when no other means of communication would work, you know, the little handheld gizmos that are basically like an old-fashioned beeper, except that you can write a text message on them and email it out. So we had a, a pretty comprehensive picture of what people were doing and trying to do inside both towers on the upper floors, as well, you know, in the lower floors, mm-hmm. too. Uh, of course, there were a lot of, since there were so many survivors, we were also able to get their accounts. We also got, um, there was an oral history project done by the city of New York with the firefighters, and they did about 500 interviews. Now, the city has been keeping those secret, but we've gotten about 100 of them, and we're able to, uh, you know, get a lot of information out of those. And plus, we got some police and fire tapes. And so altogether, we, you know, we had a ton of communications from civilians and from uniform rescuers that helped us piece this picture together. Oftentimes, you know, we would... You know, let me give you an example of one of the stories that came out of all this material. In the North Tower, just below the impact zone, there were a number of floors where people could not get out. And, you know, you've got to understand when you're in a building like the Twin Towers, one of the towers, the um, people's uh, understanding of what's going on a floor above them or two floors below them, it's practically nil. Each of those floors was about the size of a football field, about an acre in size. And, uh, you know, you were cut off, you know, so you had basically 220 acres, 110 floors in each building where activities were happening and people didn't really understand what was going on around them. But in the North Tower, one of the most interesting stories was developed on the 88th floor where a man, where a man named Frank Martini and uh, his partner at work, Pablo Ortiz and a couple of other men, men named Mac Hanna and, um, and um, some other folks who were with them, first cleared a path through a lot of debris, fire, uh, burning ceilings, and things like that on the 88th floor. And they were able to get about 40 people off of that floor, including Frank Martini's wife, who had stopped up that morning to have coffee with him before work. And so just as they had gotten everybody out of the 88th floor, they heard some banging in the stairway from up above them. And the sound of that bang, of course, got their attention. And what was going on on the 89th floor was that People from Metropolitan Life Insurance and from some law firms and other companies had been trying for about 20, 25 minutes to get off of their floor, and they just were having, uh, an, you know, facing an impossible situation. Part of the, that floor had a lot more damage. At that point, the elevator shafts were just gaping holes with fire in them. The doorways were actually shifted by the impact of the plane, so they couldn't open the doors into the stairwells. And a good part of the floor a good part of that 89th floor, the actual floor under their feet was starting to melt. So as people came to realize that the doors were jammed shut and they couldn't get out and this fire was advancing on them, you know, they went to their phones and they started to make telephone calls home and say, you know, I'm not going to get out of here. I just want to say goodbye and farewell. Well, a few of them, though, had banged on the door. And as Frank Martini and Pablo Ortiz were in the hallway, they and the stairway, they heard this bang, and they went up the stairs with the man named Matt Hanna, and, the, you know, people inside on the 89th floor described how they suddenly heard a voice saying, get away from the door. Suddenly, this crowbar comes smashing through the wall, pries open the door, and it's 
Frank Demartini and Pablo Ortiz covered in dust from their own floor and soot from their own floor. And they go in and they just walk through and they get everybody off of that floor who they can reach. And they lead them out to safety. And then Frank and Pablo start working their way down. As we piece together the story, Frank uh, worked for the Port Authority. He was a, uh, an ins- uh, a manager for them. He had a, um, a walkie-talkie. He sent out some communications. He called members of his family. And as we piece together the story with other survivors on the 86th floor, somebody looking very much like Frank Martini and Pablo Ortiz, two men came in and cleared out half of that floor. And down on the 84th and 83rd floors, men came in and cleared out those floors, up on the 90th floor. And so we were able to piece together what we believe a very credible account of the movement of Frank and Pablo. Why did we have to do that? Unfortunately, Frank and Pablo stayed in the building until the very end and did not escape themselves. You know, and then there's, of course, the, 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 you know, the, one of the most captivating moments in the book for me, uh, you know, just the most amazing story involved... Um, five men who had gotten on an elevator just after having some breakfast on the 44th floor where there was a cafeteria, and they were on their way up in an express elevator when the planes hit. That elevator suddenly dropped, and then it came to a stop. And the men inside waited for a few minutes, and then some smoke started coming in, and they were really getting, you know, a little upset, and they pushed the alarm button, and nobody was really answering. They got a recorded message back that we've your, your message is been uh, noted and we'll get to you as soon as we can. So the guys inside pried open the car doors, but what they discovered was the elevator had not stopped at an express stop. So what they faced instead of another set of doors leading out into the floor was a blank wall, sheetrock wall. And among the five of them, they really had no tools except one man was a window washer. His name was Jan Dempser. And Jan took the rubber edge off of his squeegee and he began to score the wall very very you know thoroughly because he had worked in construction and he knew that sheetrock comes in a panels of about three quarters of an inch thick so he scored through that wall over and over and over again and his hand actually started to ache so much some of the other men started scoring through the wall with the squeegee blade finally actually they were working so hard at it that one of the guys dropped the squeegee blade down the shaft of the elevator. So all they were left with was the stub of the squeegee. And they used that to claw through the final layer of sheetrock. I think there were three separate boards of sheetrock on that wall. And then they hit white tiles. It turned out they were on the other side of a women's bathroom on the 50th floor. So they got the guy with the biggest foot in a great big shoe, and he started kicking it like a donkey. And he actually busted through the tiles with his uh, shoe. Guys kept punching holes through it, and the five of them were able to squeeze out through that tiny hole, and they got down to the street. They had no idea what had happened, absolutely not the slightest clue. They might as well have been in a submarine 500 feet under the water as, you know, being 500 feet up in the sky. Uh, And they got down to the street just in the nick of time. No one in those buildings expected the towers to collapse as they did. Is that correct? As far as I could see, almost no one thought they were going to collapse. And, uh, you know, even after the first one collapsed, the the people still inside the North Tower, which uh, stood for another 29 minutes, few of those people actually understood what had happened in the other building. So as you can see, because you write that uh, uh, the people inside the buildings actually, because of the shape of the windows, couldn't really see what had occurred for the most part. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, the towers were built actually by an acrophobiac. Acrophobiacs are, uh, I, I happen to be a member of that tribe, the people afraid of heights. 
And the architect who designed the Trade Center was terrified of high buildings. So one of the things he did was build 22-inch wide windows so that when you, um, you know, there was a, it was kind of a pinstriping effect on the outside. But from the inside, when you stood at the window, you could have your hands on both sides of the window frame very comfortably at once. So it, was, it actually gave you a, a fairly narrow perspective on things. You take the task, uh, the Port Authority and uh, a lot of the communications breakdown that occurred, uh, and we'll get to that in just a second, but I also want to bring on, and I mentioned this to you earlier tonight when we were talking, that uh, one of the gentlemen that you write about in the book, brother, his brother uh, lives and works here in Pittsburgh. In fact, he's an investigative reporter for KDKA-TV and an investigative journalist uh, at one time for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Andy Sheehan uh, joins us right now, and you write about his brother, Michael. Yes, I did, uh, uh, and uh, Andy's a well-known and well-regarded Investigative reporter. I'm glad he's on. Andy? Hey, Dill, Mike. Good. How are you? Hey, uh, first, I, I wanted to congratulate Jim. Um, I haven't read the book yet, but I read the original series in the Times, and I read just about everything there was to read about 9-11, and, and it, it was just a remarkable series and a remarkable piece of journalism. Just uh, oh, thanks so much. painstaking work and uh, exhaustive research and just the emotional power of, of, of that series. When you write about Michael Sheehan, uh, you write that uh, when that first plane hit, he took off like a bat out of, uh, out of hell and knocked one of his co-workers down to get down the steps, and he could have been clear of the building. He was yeah. gone, and then the Good Samaritan in him took over. Yeah, my, Mike uh, told uh, uh, what turned out to be a kind of a funny story because he did look out the windows, and all he could, as he described it, all he could see were the... Uh, you know, some of the smoke and maybe like looked like confetti coming out of the sky from the other building. He really didn't understand what had happened, but uh, I guess he had recently experienced a house fire somewhere, and, right. yeah. and uh, once he saw that, that was enough for him. He just turned and bolted. He actually ran down a, a friend of his from work who was standing between him and the door, <laughs> and then as he was heading down, he was surprised that when he got to the stairs that there weren't more people in them already, but I, I think he had his running shoes on or something, and he, right. he went... When he got down the several flights of stairs, there was a woman in the staircase who needed some help, and, and Mike uh, was uh, stayed with her and escorted her out through the uh, bottom of the South Tower and was with her just coming out of the building, I believe, when the second plane struck their building. That's right. He looked up and... Uh... They saw the plane. In the book, he write that uh, he saw the confetti flying, but he stopped and looked down and uh, picked up, uh, it was like a flight record or something like that. So he knew it wasn't just some little Piper plane that hit the building. Yeah, I mean, Andy, why don't you tell that story? Well, yeah, I mean, he saw, he saw paper coming down, and that, that sort of signaled to him that uh, this, wasn't, this wasn't an ordinary, you know, little Piper Cub hitting, hitting the, the, the towers. Yeah, but yeah they ha there had been a, a fire in his house, and uh, he just reacted sort of instinctually. Uh, one thing that happened is he was in the he was in the south tower, which uh, was the, was the second tower hit. But it, it, there was that sort of that famous announcement when he he got down to about the thirtieth floor, and there was an, a general announcement in the in the tower. Uh, it's okay. The, this building is secure. It's okay to return to your offices. And a lot of people went back up in the tower. Correct, Jim? That that's right. Yeah, that that, that was a uh, a major moment when that announcement was made. Uh, it stopped a lot of people who were on their way out from leaving, and a lot of people who had already headed down turned back. 
including one guy that was, uh, I think it was in your, your piece, that he, uh, he, he went above the 54th floor where the, the second plane had hit and, you know, then realized he had made the wrong decision quite Andy, tragically. Andy, what did, what did Michael tell you about why he stopped to help uh, the woman in the, in the stairwell? Well, he's a good guy, you know. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think uh, there were a lot of people that, that struggled, and there was a lot of stories that day about uh, people in wheelchairs and uh, people carried people down on their backs. And, uh, you know, it was, a, it was an amazing day for New Yorkers and uh, you know, mankind, yeah, but people they, from all over the country just, that were in those towers and got, all over the world that were amazing acts of heroism. But they got to the ground, Jim, you write about this, they got to the ground level, they were outside of the building under the overhang when the second plane hit the South Tower. Right. And Michael told me at that point, you know, he knew, as everyone else did, that this was terrorism at that point. I mean, that... I have another brother who worked in the in the North Tower, the first tower that, that was hit, uh, and he worked for Port Authority, and uh, fortunately he was late for work that day. But I had been in his offices in the North Tower, which were in the, around the 86th floor. I think he was on the 88th floor, if I remember uh, correctly. Him, yeah, right. And, and watching on television, I, I had taken the day off, and my wife called and said, you know, the planes are in the, the Trade Center. And uh, I saw it, and, and I thought my brother was, he was dead because, you know, I, I knew where he worked. And, uh, you know, I knew, I knew, saw this gaping hole in the, in the Trade Center and, and uh, felt for sure. Michael was able to, to call me uh, on a cell phone. None of the, the phones in New York worked, and, and I was sort of in communication with his wife in New Jersey because I could call from Pittsburgh where he couldn't call down to New Jersey. So I called to let her know that he was okay, but it was several hours before we found out about my other brother. Actually, Pittsburgh figures in the in the book in the epilogue. Uh, strangely enough, you know, we called it 102 minutes because everything that happens in in the main part of the book begins when the first plane hits and it ends when the the last of the two towers collapses. But the epilogue takes place uh, in the aftermath, and there was um, two Port Authority police officers who are trapped basically dead center under the middle of the of the, the entire trade center. They're about 20 feet underground. They had been uh, bringing some equipment towards an elevator in hopes of getting at running and getting upstairs when the buildings collapsed on top of them and basically trapped them completely, and they were utterly out of sight. And you can't begin to describe the extent of the devastation at that point with, you know, 210-story buildings basically reduced to, you know, rubble and, and uh, the plaza was destroyed and everything on uh, between the two buildings was covered. So these guys were buried down there and uh, they, nobody could see them. And, the, and, and in fact, there was so much fire in the smaller buildings that are part of the trade center. It was very hard for anybody to get out onto the plaza and even do a search. Watching TV in Connecticut that day was a guy named Dave Carnes, who was a Marine, or he had just left the Marines sometime about a year earlier. He had served his time in the Marines, and he was now an accountant with Deloitte Touche, and he drove down from Connecticut to a storage locker in Long Island where he had his, that's quite a drive, by the way, it's you know, a good 30, 40 miles at least, no matter how you cut it, and he drove out to a storage locker where he had his Marine utility had his, his uniform, you know, his, his clothes, and he put them on. He went to a barber. He got a high and tight haircut, and he drove down uh, with, uh, with the... He stopped to say a prayer, 
and he drove down to uh, Lower Manhattan with the hood down on his new convertible car that he'd gotten as an accountant, I guess, and uh, showed up at Ground Zero. And, and basically, you know, yeah, everybody was just in a complete state of shock when after these events had happened. And Carnes, uh, who had been a staff sergeant when he left the Marines, went out onto the rubble. He found another Marine down. He said, come on, let's go. We're going to walk out here. And he walks out into the rubble, and he's calling uh, United States Marines, if you can hear me, shout to me. And you have to understand that the two cops who had been trapped in the middle of that rubble all day long, they had not quite given up hope, but they were close to it. Nobody knew where they were. There was fire rolling all around them. They couldn't move. They could, their legs were badly crushed, and they were dehydrating. It was a terrible situation. So they get out to the middle of the rubble. Uh, so Dave Carnes gets out to the middle of the rubble, and suddenly, you know, Somebody answers him back. Yeah, we're here. We're here. You know, the guys down there have heard somebody saying United States Marines, if you can hear him shout back to me. So Dave is now stuck in the middle of a 17-story moonscape of burning fires and collapsed building and nobody around. And he has no way of dialing. The, his, he's got a cell phone with him, but you cannot get a single person in New York. Right. You know, to answer his cell phone, as, as Andy was saying before. So what he did was he called his sister, who lives in a suburb of Pittsburgh. I'm not sure if uh, it's um, Suickley. Am I yeah, saying yeah. Right? Sure. It might be Suickley, somewhere around there. And, and, he, and he calls her up, because you could get service from the middle of the collapsed World Trade Center to Pittsburgh. And she called her local police, and they were able to get message into New York City cops that there was a United States Marine standing in the middle of the rubble with two Port Authority police trapped underground. Wow. Yeah. That's fantastic. A lot of uh, incredible stories in here, and uh, I highly recommend it. Jim Dwyer and Kevin Flynn, 102 Minutes, the untold story of the fight to survive inside the Twin Towers. America was targeted for attack because we're the brightest beacon for freedom and opportunity in the world. This is now the focus of my administration. And now that war has been declared on us, we will lead the world to victory. This is war. Every nation has to either be with us or against us. Those who harbor terrorists or who finance them uh, are going to pay a price. I say bomb the hell out of them. If there's collateral damage, so be it. They certainly found our American civilians to be expendable. Since the attacks on September 11, 2001, the Department of Homeland Security was created in response of September 11. It merged 22 governmental agencies into one, including the Customs Service, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, the U.S. Coast Guard, and the Federal Emergency Management Agency. U.S. taxpayers, through the government, put together an aid package passed by Congress to bail out the airlines. Insurance claims arising from the 9-11 attacks totaled $9.3 billion, and cleanup at Ground Zero in New York City took 3.1 million hours of labor to clean up 1.8 million tons of debris at a total cost of $750 million. As of July 2018, according to a CNN report, 1,642 of the 2,753 World Trade Center victim remains have been positively identified. After nearly 10 years of escaping justice, Osama bin Laden's compound was detected in a remote Pakistan village. 
On April 29, 2011, President Barack Obama gives the order to raid bin Laden's compound. In the early morning hours of May 2, 2011, a group of 25 Navy SEALs raid the compound and Osama bin Laden is killed. This podcast is The Live Mike. I'm your host, Mike Romai, on The Social Voice Project. If you like what you heard, go to like, rate, and review on your favorite podcast app. If not, keep it to yourself. Talk to you soon. to tell me if we go and kill a thousand people there in the United States what will you what will you think what would your country would like to do okay we are also human beings like you are why don't you understand this thing that we are exactly the same kind of human being like you people are our people also want to retaliate